What did you find? Uh, well, I know that the root of the, the, the nation is, is grounded or part of the foundation or some. When early on in uh, Georgian history, they were really into St. George. Yeah. Uh, so, which is, but that doesn't really explain it because it's Georg, it's still not Gruzi. Uh, so maybe in Georgian it comes out differently. But something else, a really weird connection I, I made is that uh, peasant in Russian is Kristiani, which, uh, mm-hmm. which is not the same as Christiani, which yeah, is Christian, right. but it may have a similar root in, in the Greek. So yeah. could be peasant and farmer and Christian may have some relation. Yeah. They had some, um, I, looked up, I looked up Georgia also, and they're uh, George, Soviet, or Russian Georgia, Soviet Georgia as we grew up calling it um, because we were Beatles fans. Um, and um, the, there are several theories, but one is that it is from the Greek meaning farmer um, possibly through St. George. And another was that it was from a Persian word for the region of obscure origin that sounded like that. But frequently when you have um, um, two possible roots for the name of a place, they're both true, which is to say that people, um, um, some people hear one name, but they assume it's another name. And then the assumption that it's actually something else um, is contagious. So you start pronouncing it a little bit differently um, because you think it's the same thing. For example, our word compound in English, um, as uh, we have a word compound, which comes from Latin, um, which means the combination of two elements, or two or more elements make a compound, as you will all recall from chemistry. Um, there's also compound as in uh, where the Kennedys live in Hyannis, is the Kennedy compound. And we pronounce it the same way and spell it the same way. But that's actually from a Sanskrit word that has nothing to do with com or pound um, in, in our other word compound. And would, if we didn't have the word compound in chemistry, we would probably pronounce the compound as in where the Kennedys live differently, more, uh, more in the Sanskrit form um, than we do. And um, the, so what happens is we hear a word, we think it's a familiar word, but being used in a somewhat unfamiliar way. We even have a theory that a compound is a kind of complicated series of, of little places. There's a place to sleep, there's a place to play touch football, there's a dock, and that all those things are linked together the way atoms are linked together, in, or the way the, the, the atoms of various elements are linked together in a chemical compound. That theory is wrong. Um, but because it makes a certain kind of sense, we put those two words together. So something like that can happen with Georgia. That is that some people have a theory that there are a lot of farmers there because it kind of sounds like um, that's what it means to people who, have, who come from a Greek background, even though the word is, might be Persian. Or it could go the other way around. That is, some people from a Persian background think, oh, it's a Persian word. Um, uh, even though it's actually coming from a Greek root. Um, languages are always intermixing that way. This is important for Spencer because Spencer does this intentionally, as we will have occasion to see. He said segueing with uncommon brilliance um, back into the Fairy Queen. Um, you will see this in particular um, in, in book three of the Fairy Queen with the way um, Spencer talks about mirrors and what he does with the word mirror. But basically what we're talking about here are puns. Um, What a pun is in any language is an intentional putting together of two different meanings 
in a single word so that they both work in one way or another. Um, what individuals do when they pun, languages do naturally over time. That is, people make mistakes. Um, they think that, that um, they hear one word and th they think they're hearing another word. Um, and then they think there must be some relationship um, between the two, the two concepts that seem to be named by a single word, um, compound being a very obvious example. There are lots of examples like this. Um, I don't know if we talked, did we talk about punch? Punch is um, maybe another example. Um, I think we talked about it in the other class, but you know, um, do you all know, if you ever watch TV Land, you know that old Hawaiian punch commercial? Do people know it? How would you like a nice Hawaiian punch? Um, yeah. So there's a, there's, there's a kid walking and says, how would you like a nice Hawaiian punch? And, and this greedy older man says, sure. And then the kid punches him in the nose. Um, and then you get fruit juicy Hawaiian punch. Um, but lots of people think, okay, the reason punch is called punch is because it packs a punch if it's a good punch, if you put some grain alcohol in it, right? Um, do any of you kind of have a vague theory that that's, that, that might be why um, if you go to a party and they're serving punch and you're under 21, you shouldn't be drinking it because it will pack a punch? Is that not in any of your mind about why punch is called punch? Why do you think it's called punch? No theory at all? It's just, come on, it's punch. What do you want? <laughs> it's, yeah, that's your view. No one thinks of it as packing a punch? So it doesn't pay. Yeah. Um, I, well, okay, how about this? That sometimes when you talk about um, certain uh, comestibles as packing a punch because they, they, um, there's a lot of alcohol in them, um, you might think, yeah, it's like punch. That is, it goes down easily but, but gets you drunk fast. None of you ever thought that either. Okay, you don't have the same folk theories that most people do. Um, punch in... Um, Punch as a fist and punch as a drink actually have the same root, um, but it goes way back. It's a root, it's the Sanskrit word for five, which in Greek becomes penta, as in pentangle, um, but in Sanskrit it's more like, um, can, do you know it? Puncha? Yeah. What is Punjab. It? Punjab is the land of the five rivers. It comes from oh, that Oh, okay, yeah, so the, pun, the punch in, pun, in Punjab is the same as the punch in fist because it's your five fingers make a fist that you punch with. How about punch in um, I don't think so. I think that's Latin, but it might be. But the point about punch is punch was originally, the recipe for punch originally meant five different liquids mixed together. And so it's the five drink. It's sort of like seven up. You can imagine that um, if they drank seven up on the world of Avatar, with their seven fingers, eventually they would think that the drink and the fist were the same thing, except they're so peace-loving it would never happen. Um, but it's, um, that's what languages do, is that when you learn vocabulary, you learn it as a, as a child. And when you're a child, you make false connections between things. And those false connections, then simply by virtue of the fact that the whole culture is making them, become true connections. Um, not etymological connections, but nevertheless true connections. Um, and and uh, that, that true connection is, is, is how languages change. Um, I knew someone in college who just hated couples. She would, she would just say, oh, God, look at, the, look at those couples holding hands and swimming. And she called herself a couple thrope. Um, does everyone know what a couple thrope would mean? What do you think it means? Someone who hates couples. Yeah. 
and you're getting that because it kind of feels like throp must mean hate because um, a misanthrope is someone who hates people, so a couple throp is someone who hates couples. Um, but no, the part that means hate in misanthrope is miss, um, and the anthrope means people, anthropos as in anthropology. So a misanthrope or a misogynist are people who hate humans or people who hate women. Um, but since we know uh, misanthrope means um, human hater, we kind of think to ourselves, oh, okay, so thrope is obviously kind of suffix, it must mean hater. Um, so couple thrope means couple hater. Um, um, jet thrope means Patriots fan, um, something like that. Um, and then after a while in English, that becomes true. It does mean that if enough people say that. That's just what meaning is. Um, so uh, having segued so well into Spencer, I seem to have segued away from him, but let's go back. Um, okay, so we had gotten to about, just in our, in our plot summary, we'd started talking about some of the principles um, of the Fairy Queen, and we're going to talk about that um, at some more length today. But in our plot summary, we'd more or less gotten to um, Canto 3. So let's, uh, that, um, you guys, I thought, were doing a really good detailed job of plot summarizing, um, but we can speed it up a little bit. So let's just get to Canto 8 through plot summarizing, um, just so that we're, we're all sure we're getting what's happening. So what happens um, next? Red Cross and the Dwarf go out. They meet Duessa. Um, she claims that she's Fidessa, Fradubio. Did you look up Fridessa, by the way? OK. Um, meets Fradubio. He warns Red Cross, but Red Cross doesn't realize because he is in error, which is, um, let's, I guess I'm just going to say that error is the great presiding um, context of book one of The Fairy Queen. Um, that is, people um, are make, are, and in particular, Red Cross is getting things wrong. What he gets wrong is who is good, Duessa or Una. He gets that wrong. He gets it wrong that Una has betrayed him. Um, <coughs> and uh, just to repeat again, because this is important and not just a one-off. It's not just a, oh, cool, self-reference. English professors are always interested in moments of self-reference, but now let's go on with the good story. It's not a one-off. The error that Red Cross makes that inaugurates the whole book is his <coughs> belief that he has defeated error. So the thing about error is that error contaminates everything it comes into contact with. And um, the first way that you can see that is to believe that you've defeated error is to make an error. And throughout book one of The Fairy Queen, whatever Red Cross thinks he's gotten past, he's wrong. Red Cross is erroneous over and over again. Now, so that's, that's let's, put it, let's put it this way, that the context in which the conflict of Book One of the Fairy Queen takes place in the compound called Fairyland. The, conf in the conflict in which, um, the context of that conflict is error. The conflict itself um, usually, 
but usually it's going to mean as Spencer gets weirder and weirder, and I, I think that's what's great about Spencer, that, that there are no rules that, um, that last all the way through the Fairy Queen. Um, but at least at the beginning of the Fairy Queen, what you will find is book six, I mean canto six, or canto seven, that is the middle cantos of each book, provide the most important information not as to who the knight is going to have to defeat, but what the danger the knight is, um, is particularly um, vulnerable to is. So what you will see is that in book one, the danger to which Red Cross might be, that might be his Achilles heel, what house does he go into in Canto Six? And that indicates that the danger that he um, under um, undergoes is the danger of pride. You can see it when he defeats the dragon that vomits books, and he says, "Wow, I did it!" Yeah, exactly. So, so error, pride. Error is the context or the ground upon which holiness is threatened by pride. And the thing is, which, what Spencer wants you to think about, and what is not, it's not an obvious thing to think about, but it's not that hard to think about, is why should pride be the danger that holiness runs? So just as a guess, what's an answer? Why should holiness be particularly Someone trying to be holy, why should they be particularly um, vulnerable to pride? They might feel they might get a holier than thou complex. Holier than thou, perfect. Lorraine, is that what you're going to say? Yeah, holier than thou. Look at me, I'm holy. Um, I'm so great because I'm holy. Um, if you're a farmer and you find that, whoa, this armor, Farmer armor, nice. Um, this armor fits. Um, how's that going to make you feel? He comes in as a clown, and everyone says, oh, you, you're not a knight. Um, but he still, remember this isn't the letter to Raleigh, but he still puts on the armor, and whoa, it fits. And suddenly he looks so good. <clears throat> Who knew that he could look so good? It's a little like the breakfast club. Who knew that all he has to do is put on this armor, and he'll look so good? Um, so how does that make him feel? Well, proud. Um, proud. That, that changes his identity too, from farmer to knight. Which yeah. Throughout, which he wasn't beforehand. Right. Put on the armor, the armor fits. He puts on that identity. Exactly. And then it's even more explicit when he defeats. Uh, well, kind of defeats Sun's joy when he's hidden in the star cloud and he kneels down to uh, Lucifer. Yes. Um, who is the allegorical representation of? Of pride. Um, so it's the house of pride. She is pride. Um, pride, uh, Ben's not here. the other Ben's not here today, um, but some people from, from uh, Hume 10 AR. Um, pride in Dante. Um, which sin is it in Dante? Don't just say it's a sin of pride. Um, it is a sin of pride. But of, um, if you remember your purgatorio, I'm looking at you. Uh, why does Dante have seven peas put on his forehead? Do you remember? Because all seven sins stem from pride. Yeah, all seven sins stem from pride. Um, P actually stands for sin there, um, peccatus. Um, but they all come where he goes to the terrace of the prideful, 
in purgatory. Every sin is originally the sin of pride. Um, that might be a little bit hard to see right off, except just, see, but it's easy to see um, in the converse, which is um, in order to cure yourself of any sin, what must you display? Humility. humility. So humility is always the first and sine qua non for, um, for repenting and, um, and curing yourself, not only, not only being forgiven, but getting rid of some sinful aspect of yourself. The first thing that you need is humility. And therefore, the opposite of humility is pride. And pride is something which is always a danger to, even to the good because um, pride is what gives you, um, if humility is what allows for repentance and change of life, then you could say again by, by an argument from opposition that sticking to your guns, sticking to principle, um, deciding that you're going to go after the dragon no matter how bad things are, um, keeping consistent with your own ideals really requires in you something that looks a lot like pride. You have to be really careful to make sure that that doesn't turn into the sin of pride. Um, not questioning yourself looks like pride. Not questioning your own quest or your own goal looks like pride. So holiness is there is such a thing as holiness, but um, the, the, it's a very, very narrow pathway with pride on both sides of it um, because pride is almost exactly what you need to be persistent in holiness. Um, you have to trash talk the evil people, but as soon as you start trash talking, you're showing pride or you're, you're risking showing pride. Um, so it's a very, very close call um, whether you're proud or not. Nietzsche has a famous aphorism that um, everyone is proud, says Nietzsche. Um, even the self-despiser is proud of himself for being a self-despiser. Um, so even repentance can be a mode of pride, according to Nietzsche. And I think Spencer knew everything Nietzsche did, or almost everything, um, and a lot more besides. And that's a Spencerian idea, that even self-hatred is a form of pride. That's a Dantean idea also. You'll find something like that in Dante. But even self-hatred is a form of pride. You can um, see it in Teresa of Avila's work. It's so self-abasing, it's, it's unbelievably prideful. Yeah, look at me, I'm so self-abasing. Mm -hmm. And then there's a tale of the Hasidim. Um, some of you may know the, that two-volume Shokin um, collection, but there's a tale of one Hasidic rabbi who is known as, as uh, who is known for his humility. And um, one day he is. Um, uh, there are actually two stories about him. One is that someone comes to his house just before Sabbath. He's invited this guy for Sabbath, and um, the guy knocks on the door. The other rabbi knocks on the door, and um, he says, "Who's there?" And the other guy says, "It's me." Silence from inside. Um, after a few more minutes, more knocking. Who's there? It's me. Um, silence and all, all the shades are drawn. Finally, more knocking. Who's there? It's me, Rabbi, Rabbi, whatever, Elishu. 
Um, then he opens the door and says, how dare you say it's me? Only the Holy One, blessed be he, can refer to himself as it's me without saying who he is. Um, so there's something which seems you know, very humble, but this guy is rebuking him for pride as though it's me is enough. But then the same rabbi, he goes to someone else's house for, for the Sabbath, um, and he knocks on the door, and the guy inside says, um, who's there? And he says, the humble one. <laughs> and the guy inside opens the door and says, how dare you call yourself the humble one? That, that's a self-deconstructing designation. He doesn't put it that way, but that's the, um, that's the Lithuanian for what he says. Um, that's a self-deconstructing designation. And he says, no, it isn't. I don't think it's a big deal to be humble. So he's even humble about his humility, and that's the lesson that story is supposed to tell you. Yes. <laughs> or, or as um, uh, I think it was Attlee, one of the prime ministers of England, um, said of himself, um, I'm a very humble person for good reason. Um, and that's what non-prideful humility would be like. Um, but, you know, if you watch Sunday morning cable TV, you will see a lot of very prideful humility in the megachurches. Um, Glenn Beck is the perfect example of proud humility, um, of humility. You know, he weeps at his own humility and how wonderful it is. Um, and um, that's the danger that holy people like Glenn Beck or Red Cross um, are courting, is that the very thing that makes them holy, um, it's really hard to maintain it unsinfully. Um, you do want to maintain it, but that requires you to um, be somewhat more certain than you actually have a right to be, somewhat more confident in yourself than you have a right to be. So there has to be a way of getting to um, the only way you can do it without falling into pride is through a kind of self-confidence that isn't, that isn't proud self-confidence. None of that is easy. One way to do it is you need help. If you accept help, then you're saying, actually, I can't do this alone. The fact that the armor fits me isn't enough for me. But again, this occurs on the level of error because confidence is confidence that you can tell truth from error. Red Cross is proud that he's defeated error. Red Cross is confident, therefore, that he can tell truth from error, and yet the error is how confident he is that he can tell truth from error. So we'll see that in a minute. Yeah? Uh, I just wanted to say that, isn't that stemming from the idea that all the key sins are corruptions of good things, like pride is a corruption of self-respect? Yes. And so on. Yeah, exactly. And Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou fallen was the first sin, the greatest sin. Yeah, the sin of, of Lucifer or Satan, well, this is going to be in Paradise Lost, is the sin of pride. That is that um, he is so proud. Lucifer is, is um, some people think his name before the fall. Lucifer means bearer of light, light carrier, Lucifer. Um, and um, Lucy, Lucy from bearer and fur from light. Not. No. <laughs> no, I'm just doing couple throat. Um Lucy as in light, lucid, and fur as in carrier, um, as, um, as in transfer, that means to carry across, across carrying, that's what transfer means. Um, so his sin is that of pride, as you'll see in Paradise Lost. Um, God one day says, I have this day begot whom I declare my only son. 
Unto him all knees shall bow and shall declare him Lord. And um, Satan, because um, no one in Paradise Lost is willing to call him Lucifer anymore, um, Satan says, wait a second, I've just been displaced as the most important of God's angels. I'm not going to put up with that. So he starts a war against God. Um, he loses, in case you didn't realize. Um, but he has a war against God for that reason. And it's pride. It's, he's, he will not bend his knee to this newcomer whom God one day says, I'm promoting him before you. Um, I'm promoting this absolute newcomer to the um, second in command of heaven. Um, so, th so pride is what causes a fall. If you say pride goeth before a fall, which is um, if there's one um, biblical proverb that um, is again governing book one of the fairy queen, pride goeth before a fall, and we will see that in the transition to Canto 7, the second half of book one, um, pride goeth before a fall because pride is error. That is, proud, the proud don't know that a fall is coming up. That's the whole point. They're proud of how things are, and they're in error that this is um, that things are now established this way. Um, so, so the very idea that pride goeth before a fall brings in the concept of error. Um, it is, you are making a mistake, my friend, by being so proud of this, pride goeth before a fall. That's, that's always implicit in the proverb. Okay, so what we had was um, Red Cross defeating Sans Foy, and then in the House of Pride defeating Sans Joy, and then, then what happens? Una, in the meantime, just plot summarize. It gets complicated, but that's why it's worth keeping our, um, our, our ideas of narrative thread fairly clear. So what, what happens with Una? Yeah. She, uh, she gets to a forest where she meets up with satyrs and all sorts of wood creatures. And she ends up, there's a, uh, a knight who lives in the woods who- Saturn. Right, who grew kind of wild from, he had a satyr father and a human mother, and mm -hmm. he was raised by the satyr father. Yeah. And uh, the, she tells the satyr knight what, uh, what has happened to her, and he decides to help her out. And they leave, they escape the woods and run into Sans Loy. Sans Loy. Yeah. And he, uh, I think I remember correctly. He, uh, Satyr, Saturn. Saturn, yeah. Saturn beats him. Mm -hmm. And at, I'm trying to remember the transition where Arthur. Arthur doesn't come in for a while. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so yeah, you're doing her story. What you skipped was um, Archimago disguised as. Well, first he no he's first before he's disguised he's disguised as an old man the first time we see him. Yeah. His next disguise is his Red, Red Cross. Cross. And what happens when he and um, Sansloy go at it? Sansloy knocks off his disguise. Yeah, 
and Sansloy's about to kill him, um, but then takes off his helmet, and oh my goodness, it's Archimago. Um, what a relief in a way, and yet what a nightmare in a way to Una. So she's been tricked by Archimago disguised as holiness, um, and, um, but just in time, when Sans Loy is about to defeat, um, uh, and she thinks kill Red Cross, Red, Cro- Red Cross turns out not to be Red Cross, but Archimago. Isn't it interesting that truth can be deceived by re- resemblance, or however you pronounce that? Resemblance, yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, and uh, again, one thing you can do, but needn't, but this is where all the arguments about interpreting the Fairy Queen is, is decide whether something is occurring for plot reasons or for symbolic, that is to say, allegorical reasons. So um, if you want to give an allegorical reading of that, you can give an allegorical allegorical reading of anything in Spencer. Um, But the problem is you can give an allegorical reading of anything. Um, For example, we can see that the BPA-free water bottle towers over the wasteful um, (laughs) paper and also probably um, number seven plastic cap, which are both (laughs) evil, and they're trying to stand up to the goodness of the BPA-free bottle but the BPA-free bottle is towering over that. Nevertheless, it's tipping its hat in order to show that um, it understands that the paper of the cup at least is recycled, which is better than nothing. And it's also (laughs) suggesting to the coffee cup that it should take off that number seven plastic top the way it itself is tipping its little hat. It might Um, be a cudgel. You never know. Well, yeah, or it could be a cudgel. Um, But all of this, we can know that we're supposed to read this allegorically. Why? Because the fairy queen is very carefully placed in the foreground as a, as a sign that we should read allegorically. Um, and notice that there's, a, that there's a pen and paper, and the pen is writing, it's permanent, there's a pencil in front of him, but he's, he's not using the pencil which is erasable and which, does, which can't therefore speak eternal truths, but he's using the pen, um, which does indicate that the allegorical meaning of this is some eternal truth that we should keep in our minds forever. Um, so the, as I say, the problem is that there's nothing that you can't read allegorically. Um, and um, that fact that you can always read something allegorically means that um, you have to really decide moment by moment in Spencer whether Spencer is thinking, here's an allegorical episode that ought to be read allegorically. And some of them obviously are, like the House of Pride. When you have the, when you have, um, the parade of the seven deadly sins, you're not supposed to say, oh, yeah, you know, there were some interesting people there um, that Red Cross kind of got interested in. And Spencer just wanted to show that there was not only good food in the House of Pride, but um, really pleasant beds to sleep in, lots of animals, and um, good sex. Um, and, you know, that's just, that was just for the, for the masses. You know, it's, it's sort of like in order to get that, um, that R rating so that people would go to the movies and not try to watch The Fairy Queen on TV. No, that's as wrong as can be. Um, but there are other things where you have to dis- you, you're not sure whether something is allegorical or not. Um, the very hardcore Spencerians will say everything is allegorical, that there isn't a moment in Spencer that isn't allegorical. But the problem with that, as I say, is that once you start, if that's your principle, that everything is allegorical, First of all, the story becomes of no interest whatever 
um, because it's all there for some other reason, not because we care about the characters. But we do care about the characters. More and more, you'll see as we go on. Um, you know, Red Cross may not be your... Um, it may, you may not desire to have more stories about Red Cross when this one is done. Um, but when we get to Britomart, you're going to feel like Spencer, which is more Britomart, always more Britomart. There's never anything wrong with more Britomart. Um, kind of like when Spike first joins Buffy. Um, he was only supposed to be there for, uh, for six episodes, but he ran away with the show. Um, or Angel. Um, so that's how you're going to feel. But then the characters have to be interesting as characters rather than as abstractions. Um, and that means that not everything can be allegorical because if everything is allegorical, then you have no humanity. Um, so there are going to be lots of, of um, ambiguous cases. Um, so when we look at Una, do we say, oh no, Una is in danger. This poor young woman who's been abandoned by a knight who was too self-righteous, who didn't give her a chance, who assumed he knew what she was going on out of prideful error, because that's what he did. Are we supposed to think, ah, but Una is the true church, and yet somehow the true church is taken in by um, hypocrisy and believes that, um, that um, holiness can be defeated by lawlessness, and that belief um, comes out as her own hypocrisy. That would be a, clearly a wrong reading of the Fairy Queen. She's not hypocritical. The fact that Archimago turns out to be disguised as Red Cross is not a sign that Una has accepted hypocrisy, um, has believed that hypocrisy is a holy thing to do. Um, she doesn't. So how do you read that allegorically? Well, you may not read it allegorically at all. You may just say, okay, we have a story, and then stuff has to fall into place for that story to work. We have an allegorical story. Other stuff has to fall into place, but don't read that other stuff falling into place as, it, as itself having allegorical meaning. Or you could make an allegorical argument. I'm not going to do this over and over again, but you could make an allegorical argument, which is the true church was corrupted by Catholicism. That's what a Protestant view, and the Fairy Queen is an intensely Protestant book. It's an intensely Protestant book because it's written in honor of Queen Elizabeth, who is the head of the English Protestant Church, the Anglican Church, as it's called, um, and who is, um, that church is opposed to the Catholic Church. And um, all throughout, and Elizabeth had, when she became queen, she was um, her main goal and object and the focus of all her policy was to make England Protestant once and for all. After many bloody battles, not only in England but in Europe, between, the, between Catholics and Protestants. And she came up with a version of Protestantism which is still the Church of England now. If you guys saw the King's speech, which if you didn't, you should. The reason that, that Edward has to abdicate is because he is the head of the Church of England, and the head of the Church of England cannot marry a divorced woman, because the Church of England at the time did not recognize divorce um, among, among the aristocracy. So the, um, uh, that <coughs> situation was established by Elizabeth in some danger a hundred years later, 
But essentially, once Elizabeth became queen, every monarch in England was the head of the Anglican Church, which is a Protestant church. It's a high Protestant church. It's different from a whole lot of um, Protestantism. But it's still in competition with Catholicism. So this book is all about the greatness of Protestantism, to the extent that it's allegorical, the greatness of Protestantism. And it sees the Church of Rome, as it's called, the Catholic Church, as the corrupt, corrupt and evil hijacking of the what they called the original primitive church. So what happened was um, Jesus established the church. The, I, I don't know for how many of you this is, this is something you don't know, but it, this is, I'll give you what you need to know. Jesus established the church by making Peter the first head of the church. Um, allegorically, famous line is, Thou art Peter. Anyone know how it goes? Upon this rock I found my church. Thou art Peter, and on this rock I found my church. What's the pun there? Peter is rock. Peter is rock, as in petrify. And in French, the pun is, is perfectly clear. Um, vous êtes Pierre. Sur cette Pierre, I found my church. You are Pierre, which just means, in as a common noun in French, it means stone or rock. Um, as a proper noun, it's we translate it as Peter. Um, so... That was right. But then some corrupt people got a hold of the church, set up a doctrine, told their communicants, you're not allowed to read the Bible. You're not even allowed to read. But if you were to read the Bible, that would be a sin. And it was, in fact, only in the 20th century that the Catholic Church, only in the 60s, that the Catholic Church made it okay for good Catholics to read the Bible. And that's kind of weird, if to, at least to the Protestants. Because um, the very idea that um, the Bible is a top secret document, that you could only get it out of the um, 15th century equivalent of WikiLeaks, um, suggested that there were things in the Bible that those running the church didn't want people reading. Um, and that, in fact, is true. There were things in the Bible they didn't want them reading. Um, their reasons for it were that if you don't, that there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's ambiguous that if you don't read the Bible with sufficient training in how to understand it, um, you will be in the position of, of um, what Jesus himself says, which is the devil can quote scripture. You can get arguments for sin out of the Bible. There are places in the Bible that make it look like sin is, is okay, is in fact a good thing. And um, what the Catholic Church's view was what um, at its best was you have to and and what their official line was is that if you if you try to read the Bible and you're not trained in how to understand it and if you don't read all the arguments that the church fathers had and all the really intense interpretive debates that they had you're going to misunderstand it um, the anal the analogy now it's not a perfect analogy which is a good thing but the analogy now is um, the Tea Party says, just read the Constitution. That's all you need to do is read the Constitution. And what um, most sophisticated constitutional lawyers will say is, it's actually not that easy to read the Constitution. Um, there's been two centuries of argument about how to understand 
things in the Constitution, not because people are saying, well, the most famous version of this was in the Pentagon Papers. Um, so in the Pentagon Papers, do people know about this? Um, the government, Richard Nixon was trying to stop various newspapers from publishing um, uh, this report about the Vietnam War that showed um, that the government thought the Vietnam War, that the Pentagon thought the Vietnam War couldn't be won. And um, this got leaked to the press. And Nixon wanted the Supreme Court to say the press may not publish this because of national security um, through what's called prior restraint. And uh, the New York Times and other newspapers were saying, no, look, the First Amendment to the Constitution says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of the press. And what that means is, partly through the 14th Amendment, that the press is free. And um, you can sue the press if it's, if, it's, um, for, you know, if it's destroying people's lives recklessly or whatever it, through publishing lies. But you can't stop the press from printing. And the famous argument that um, the government lawyer, um, who is a great constitutional law scholar named Charles Griswold, um, he, what he said at the Supreme Court is um, that the New York Times lawyer, Floyd Abrams, um, is saying that the plain meaning of the First Amendment, which is that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of the press, that the plain meaning of that is that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of the press. And I have to disagree with him. Um, it is not the, the, where it says that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of the press does not mean that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of the press. And he knows this is an outrageous claim to start with, but then he argues it. And his argument is actually very good. It didn't win, thank goodness, in the Supreme Court, but it was a really good argument. And the argument was nothing is as simple as the simple-minded think it is. You have to look at the whole Constitution, and you have to look at what that could mean in the context of the whole Constitution. Nothing is as simple as, look, that line clearly says this, and that's all you need to know. That's what the Catholic Church said about the Bible. You really need to be immersed in it and to know all the different things that can come up and all the different issues that can occur um, before you can simply say, oh, yes, the Bible says this, so this is fine. Satan can also quote the Bible. Um, he can find a line justifying anything that he does. It's not hard. What's hard is understanding it as a whole. So that's the Catholic doctrine. The Protestant doctrine, the Reformation doctrine, this is important not only for Spencer but for Milton, and that's why I'm spending some time on it. The Reformation doctrine is God gave us his word, namely the word of God, the Bible, and he also gave us consciences. And the idea of conscience is central to Protestantism. And the idea there is you have to read the Bible in the light of your own conscience. And conscience is a gift of God, and if you pay attention to your conscience as you read the Bible, then you'll know how to interpret it. Then you'll know what to do with ambiguous moments or with moments that evil people can quote in an evil way, but your conscience will say, no, that can't be right. Yeah, King David, who is the um, the forebear of Jesus, um, King David, who is the who is the, who is the greatest of kings, 
he was an adulterer and a murderer. So that's really okay, isn't it? Um, that's what the devil will say. Look at David. Look at what he did. You should do the same. Um, and what the Protestants will say is, but that shocks the conscience. That's clearly not true. That the fact that David made mistakes doesn't mean they're not mistakes. What it means is that David made them. Um, it's your conscience that tells you that, not the Bible itself. So the Protestant view is look at your own conscience. And that, I think, is Spencer's view. That is, use your conscience to decide whether something is allegorical or whether it isn't. But, use your, but, but I want to push this a little farther and say use your conscience not in a religious sense. That is, don't say to yourself, okay, um, obviously Spencer's a Protestant and he'd be on, or Milton is a Protestant, so he'd be on the side of God and not of Satan. Um, because as you'll see, the great question in Paradise Lost is whose side is, is Milton on, God or Satan's? Um, but use your conscience, which is not supposed to be religious. You interpret religious doctrine in the light of your conscience. But your conscience itself isn't supposed to say, oh, this looks more religious, therefore I'll do it. That's pride. That's Red Cross, is to say, I can tell what's religious, and I will, I will um, um, base my views on, on um, my sense of something being either religious or not religious. Um, that's when religion becomes fanaticism. Um, but for Milton and for Spencer, the appeal to conscience is the appeal to conscience in any story where we think a character is in danger and we worry about that character. Everyone who has a really is really interested in narrative. If you go to the movies, if you read mystery novels, if you read romance novels, if you watch Friday Night Lights, if you watch Family Guy, everyone who just cares about, if you care about what's going to happen in any kind of fiction, you care about certain characters and you want to see good things happen to them. And you want to see other characters, those who, who behave um, selfishly, you want to see them um, get punished, or at least not get away with their selfishness. Everyone feels that way. It's something that Sir Philip Sidney, who is Spencer's best friend, talks about in The Defense of Poesy. Do you remember this in Sidney? Yeah, so in The Defense of Poesy, he's very interested in um, an ancient tyrant um, who would, would, without thinking about it, um, uh, torture people to death just for the pleasure of it, but he would weep at tragedies. Um, when the innocent were um, um, died unfairly at a tragedy. Um, and people were amazed that he was weeping at these things when he was much worse than any of the villains in the tragedies where he was weeping at the wrongdoing that was done in the tragedies. And for some people, this is a sign that literature is, is bullshit because um, even, even, um, even bad guys, even Hitler, um, leaves a, a tear-jerking movie with his eyes wet. Um, and then goes off and, and um, sends another 10,000 Jews to, to be gassed. Um, so that however you feel about fiction, it has nothing to do with real morality. Um, but the other way of putting it is to say that at least when you're reading fiction, there is a way of using the concept of morality 
without it having to be real morality, just the morality of this is how we understand a fiction. So this is not a moral principle that I'm giving you, but an interpretive principle. We care about Una, and if we do care about Una, we're not very likely to see her as guilty. Red Cross, he's more prob problematic. He's got to be whipped into shape. Um, this is a Shakespearean dynamic that we see all the time. That is, in Shakespearean comedy, the female leads are always right, and they don't need correction. The male leads, no. They're these coarse kind of male guys who actually need to learn a thing or two about human life and about humanity and about um, uh, what they owe other people. And they're promising <laughs> figures, but their promise is only fulfilled at the end of Shakespearean comedy. But the female figures, they're not promising. They're there from the start. Same with Una versus Red Cross. How do we know this? We don't know it from the allegory. We know it from the fact that it's a story and that Una is someone we're worried about. And part of what makes us worry about her is the way Red Cross is behaving. Not the way she's behaving, but the way Red Cross is behaving. But that's a narrative fact. We care about Una. And because we care about Una, we really want to see Red Cross stop being such a jerk. And um, that's narrative. That's not allegory. But that allows us to see what's more allegorical in Book One of the Fairy Queen. Red Cross meets Sans Foy because he's a jerk. He's being faithless. Red Cross goes to the House of Pride because he's a jerk. He's proud of himself. He doesn't realize he might be wrong. Red Cross gets defeated by Orgoglia, but that's for tomorrow. Okay, so see you tomorrow. Finish it for tomorrow, um, which will be great. I think you can suggest the, uh, the relationship between 